You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back into the Doctor's Lounge. I'm your host, Dr. Hal. Each week, myself and my co-host, Dr. Mike, bring you the best in chat radio regarding healthcare topics, and we try to educate you and give you the information that doctors are talking about in doctor's lounges all across the country. We try to uh, present to you the uh, information that you need so that you'll be able to advocate for yourself and for your family, and our show is brought to you by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, which is the only physician-led healthcare think tank in the country. Our website is www.d4pcfoundation.org, and we really rely on your support so that we can bring you this show and do all the work that we've been doing over the last decade so that we can fight for your healthcare freedom, which is one of our pillars, and to support and nurture the doctor-patient relationship, which is very much in jeopardy today, more than ever before. So please go to our website and uh, gen- and uh, donate generously. Um, no amount is too small. No amount is too big. So uh, we really uh, need your help. And uh, go to our website, read about the topics that we um, have on there each week, which um, I think will be um, very enlightening to you and uh and important. Well, without any further ado, I'm going to get into today's show and um, and introduce my guest who is, has been on this show before. He's been a, a great friend of um, uh, Docs for Patient Care and uh, uh, has really taught us a lot about public policy. Uh, my my uh, uh, guest is, is uh, uh, Bob Moffitt from the Heritage Foundation. He's the senior uh, fellow for uh, domestic policy studies and has a resume, uh, a, uh, a CV that is just way, way too big to uh, to enumerate. But he's got a, a, a tremendous amount of healthcare experience, starting in the Reagan administration at HHS and the Office of Personnel Management. But the things that I like the most about Bob, besides just talking to him and and uh, enjoying the uh, the uh, inside baseball uh, information that he provides is that uh, he has been uh, named to the 100 most powerful people in healthcare in 2010, and in um, the uh, uh, book written by uh, Bert Prolutsky is named as one of the 67 conservative conservatives that you should meet before you die. And I've been honored to uh, to know Bob for more than a decade and work with him. And uh, this morning we are going to uh, jump right into the healthcare topic of the day, which is the um, uh, the left's attempt to uh, uh, once again take over your healthcare. So, Bob, welcome back into the doctor's lounge. Thank you very much, Doctor. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, you know, Bob, you you have taught us a whole lot about healthcare, and um, those of you who are interested in healthcare topics, and I'm assuming because you're listening to this show, you are. I most strongly commend you to the Heritage Foundation website and to go to their healthcare section and read what Bob writes on a regular basis and it's it really is the um, epitome of clarity about health care so 
if you don't read anything else, go and read what he's writing because it really crystallizes the the um, the issues that we're facing today and what's at stake. So, so Bob, what is going on with the left and these health care proposals? Well, I think they're very clear about it. I, I don't think that there's any question about what uh, you know the the House and Senate Democratic leadership wants. And of course, uh, you got 16 members of the Senate uh, endorsing uh, Medicare for all, including all the major presidential candidates, uh, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, uh, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, so they're all on board. But the basic point is, they want to establish a universal program of uh, government health insurance. They believe that this is more fair, it will be more equitable, it's going to be efficient, it's going to be better care at lower cost. Uh, so that's the vision. Uh, under their bills, both the House and Senate bill, any person who resides in the border, within the borders of the United States, understand resides, the, the language is very clear, it's residence. So whether you're an illegal or a legal alien is irre- irrelevant here. Universal coverage. Uh, you'd be able to secure health care benefits and services as a legal right. In other words, it would not be anything other than a right, and you would enjoy a system, they claim, that will deliver higher quality and superior medical outcomes. So that's the, that's the vision. That's what they want. Uh, it will require the total abolition of all private health insurance in the United States, including the abolition of employer-based health insurance, all private health care, it would also eliminate Medicare, Medicaid, uh, the Children's Health Insurance Program. Uh, it would replace the Obamacare plans on the exchanges, and it would replace the Federal Employee Health Benefits Program. Uh, so it would, it's pretty comprehensive, um, and it's total centralized government control over both the financing and the delivery of health care. So you, um, I think it's important to jump back into what you just finished saying. So it would abolish Medicare, and yes. and so the the, um, the the that's the first lie that that is um, really um, being being perpetuated in this whole debate by the left that it's Medicare for all. It's really not Medicare for all. No, it's a very very different program. Medicare, as you know, and every doctor who practices in Medicare knows this. Uh, Medicare is basically a, a public-private partnership. Um, a, about 50 to 60 percent of seniors' uh, health care costs are borne directly by the fee-for-service or traditional Medicare. About 75 percent of seniors are in that program. Uh, but as you know, I mean, Medicare is, a, is also very heavily financed through, uh, and, and where health care delivery is, is done is through private health plans. You have uh, supplemental insurance plans, which seniors buy uh, to fill up some very crucial gaps in the Medicare program, including catastrophic coverage, uh, protection from uh, outrageous out-of-pocket costs. You also have uh, private plans that deliver uh, prescription drug benefits um, in Medicare Part D. And, of course, then you have the big Medicare Part C, which is a system of competing private plans they're all private, which is an alternative to traditional Medicare. That's the existing Medicare system. Like it or not, that's what it is. Now, we know it's very popular, but <laughs> nobody should be under any uh, impression uh, that this is going to be preserved. All of the private plans go. Uh, all of the uh, supplemental insurance plans go. 
This is a universal single-payer system in which there is only one payer, the, the a new government health insurance program. So, the, so I think what people um, don't understand or don't want to really um, uh, face or, or, or um, confront is um, wh- what happens when the government controls every aspect of health care. Can you, um, can you uh, give people an idea of what that means and, and uh, why that's going to be problematic? Well, I mean, you're talking about the government financing the program, which means, you know, universal government coverage really means universal government control. So, in effect, there is not going to be any medical transaction that's going to take place outside of government rules, regulations, or guidelines, uh, centralized rules, regulations, and guidelines. The states, for example, are out of this entirely. There's no state regulation anymore of uh, things like health insurance because private health insurance is going away. Uh, the states will still have the authority to certify doctors, but the doctors uh, who practice in the new system will be also uh, subject to a whole set of new rules for participation uh, in the government program. So it's going to be it's going to be sort of like a double regulatory system. Uh, on top of that, though, I mean, what it really means is is that if you want to go to a doctor and you want to pay privately for some reason, you might want to have a, a confidential relationship with the doctor. You want perfect privacy. You're really not going to be able to do that uh, because the doctor is going to be an agent, basically, of the government at that point, and uh, he cannot go outside of the system. Uh, and if he does, uh, he's subject to a really tough penalty. Uh, he would be barred from participating uh, in the system, in other words, getting any other kind of reimbursement under the House bill, for example, for two years. So, you know, what doctor can do that in a system where there, you have a total monopoly of, a, of payment? Uh, very few can. Do you anticipate that there's going to be an underground black market medical system if this ever, God forbid, came to pass? Well, I mean, if you're talking about bootleg medicine, like uh, how they would handle kind of a, <laughs> a, a modern version of prohibition, uh, where, you, where you have this Al Capone-type response <laughs> to uh, prohibition, speakeasies, things yes. like that. Uh, now, I, I think that's perfectly, I think it's likely there will be illegal uh, you know, but I think that, uh, you know, you'll, usually what happens when you have this kind of a system, people are desperate to try to get around it, um, especially if, in fact, the government, the problem that you're faced with is if the government plan cannot or will not deliver what you, what you really need or what you really want, uh, where do you go? That's I mean, right. That's the problem. Where, where the Canadians go right now when well, they, they come keep, here? That's exactly for specialized right. Specialized care. I mean, let's not overdo it. I mean, Canadian primary care is not too bad. But the point is, that if you need highly advanced specialized care, if you need, for example, an MRI, uh, there's only a limited number available in in uh, in Canada. Uh, CAT scans, things of that sort, highly advanced medical te- technology. Uh, where you have a, a very complex system uh, or p- complex medical condition, usually you have to come to the United States, and, and they do. The British solve this problem to some extent by saying, look, <clears throat> you're going to have you know, the British National Health Service is a single-payer system, but what the British have done since 1948 
is that they have uh, they basically said, look, if you want to be if you want to go to a private doctor and pay privately outside of the system, that's perfectly okay. And the doctor can practice in the National Health Service, the British National Health Service, and have a private practice at the same time. And there's no financial or regulatory penalty on the doctor for doing so. So as a result, you have a lot of British uh, people, British citizens, who will, you know, go uh, to uh, private uh, physicians, especially if they find that the kind of service they need is uh, blocked by very heavy, long waiting lines. And so that's not uncommon. And right now in Britain, about 11% of your British population uh, is uh, enrolled in private insurance. But in, in but here, the the the, the, <laughs> the Ocasio Cortez proposal, and you know, and Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker, they will not let anybody out of the system, and, and it is a closed system. And you talk about authoritarian, right? That yeah, it's more authoritarian. That that's interesting. American liberals have developed a health care proposal that is more authoritarian than the uh, national health insurance of British socialists in 1948. That's, that's crazy. You know, we're going to break right here. We have a hard break, but we're going to get back into this discussion at, at Britain and uh, the uh, f- and the fascist uh, <laughs> left-wing proposals when we get back in, in the next segment of the Doctor's Lounge. So stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. My guest today is Bob Moffitt, Senior Fellow uh, in the uh, Domestic Policy Studies section of the Heritage Foundation and um, one of the uh, most knowledgeable people regarding uh, health care policy in the U.S. We are talking about the, um, the push towards socialized health care and uh, why this is happening and who's behind it. So, so Bob, we, we left off talking about um, the British system, how, how they've you know, figured out how to uh, uh, allow people to um, do a workaround. But, but 
their system, the people who are within the national health care system there and who can't afford a a workaround, they are victimized by that system and and uh, um, the wait lists are long. The um, oh, they're extraordinary. Yes, it's about four million people waiting for hospitalization right now. I think it's even higher than that now. But the thing that that is you know just startling is that and that people um, don't remember from the Obamacare debates that we were talking about was the fact that they've got a rationing board in England, yeah. right? The nation, right. the, the 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 what you can you why don't, why don't you uh, explain to yeah, people how that they works? Have a, yeah, they have a board. I, I you know, it sounds like something out of a James Bond novel. <laughs> <laughs> no, very seriously, I'm I'm not kidding because it's, it's sort of it's 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 a strange name. It is. It's called the National Institute N I for Clinical Effectiveness. Yes, <laughs> and. And that's nice. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I mean, you know, this sounds like something out of Ian Fleming. Yes. <laughs> you know, the evil billionaire. Spectre. Nice, you know. <laughs> there's Spectre and then there's Nice. <laughs> you know. Anyway, uh, no, what they do is they make determinations about whether uh, medical goods or services are uh, acceptable or not acceptable under you know various criteria whether uh, it will maintain the quality of life they have metrics for quality of life um, and they also have metrics for cost effectiveness um, they do uh, you know they they literally deny the availability of medical services or goods or technologies to people often based on cost the most famous example in recent years was the delay of the cancer drug for breast cancer, Herceptin. And uh, Herceptin, as you know, uh, members of the medical profession know, is a very specific drug for a certain, very specific kind of breast cancer that affects maybe 25% of breast cancer uh, victims. Uh, and in the old days, uh, this particular type of cancer was very aggressive and almost always fatal. In the United States, we used it, and we used it effectively. We have a very high cure rate. Uh, whatever you think about American health care, if you get breast cancer, you want to get breast cancer in the United States because early stage breast cancer, we have something like a 95% survival rate in, the, in that area. But anyway, the British uh, denied Herceptin for many years, and finally it was only until, I think it was 2002, that they finally allowed it to go back on the market. But the point of it is, is that these are government-standardized decisions um, that affect the entire population. Uh, it's based on a population health theory. But the problem is, of course, as you know, you don't, when, you, when somebody walks into your office for medical treatment, you're not treating the population, you're treating that patient. And the difficulty with this kind of thing this type of approach is that um, its bureaucratic standardization is fundamentally incompatible with personalized medical care, and that is that has been that is certainly one of the trade-offs that Americans would have to accept if they decided uh, to go down the road of government um, control over the healthcare system. One one of the things that that just astounds me. You know the the um, the politicians make uh, policy, make law that they 
really don't think they're going to be um, uh, required to follow. There's been so many examples of how they are above the law and how they're a privileged class. How do they expect to be able to do a workaround in a system like this? Well, I don't think they could. <clears throat> I mean, that's that's something that is an unspoken uh, problem, I think, for members of Congress. Uh, right now, members of the House and Senate are under Obamacare. A lot of people think they're not, but in fact they are. But what has happened is they're under Obamacare, but they get very heavy special subsidies um, for uh, their Obamacare coverage that is not available to the general population. Uh, that's the way it works. That's the way they were able to make this thing work for members of Congress. Uh, we've written about this, by the way, at the Heritage Foundation. <laughs> the Obama administration basically, with a stroke of a pen, decided, <laughs> and this sounds so crazy, it's hard to believe I'm saying it, <laughs> the members of Congress <clears throat> would be able to join a small business health insurance exchange um, but in order to do that, they'd have to identify themselves as a small business. <laughs> I, I, no, I'm, I know you're laughing, and anybody listening to this program is going to be shocked to find this out. It's monkey they business. Actually, they actually put together paperwork that identified the House and Senate as small businesses oh to get uh, coverage under the Washington, D.C. Health Insurance Exchange. And uh, But that's not enough. What they were able to do is they were able to tap in to their former employer's employer health, health benefits subsidy system. So they got, they got the, uh, the subsidies that they had previously gotten under the old federal employee health benefits program to subsidize their new care uh, as small, business, small businesses in the small business exchange in Washington, D.C. You can't make this stuff up. Oh, my God. And, <laughs> and, it's, it's really, it was, it was the most arrogant uh, demonstration of contempt, you know, for the rule of law I've seen in a long time. Obama basically just simply said, you know, you know, he said, he, I'm going to use my phone and my pen. Well, he really did it <laughs> in this wow. case because there's not one shred of statutory authority uh, for Congress to get special subsidies without voting on it, uh, through the existing Obamacare program. Well, in, in this new plan, that wouldn't be possible. And no, if the, if no, the, no, that's, that's right. This, this, this is real East German stuff. <laughs> 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 you know, you're going you're gonna to be, stay behind the wall whether you like it or not. Wow. And uh, that's the way this is set up. So we haven't even really um, scratched the surface of the funding for this. Oh God! <laughs> yeah. Why don't we? Why don't we um, spend a little time on that? Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> let's let's point out to your listeners first of all that neither the Senate bill uh, authored by Senator Bernie Sanders nor the bill of the House Democrats, the House Democrats bill, neither of them have any funding financing provisions. They simply don't exist, um, which is really remarkable. It's the most curious thing. You have this vast program, but you don't have any provisions in the legislation to fund it. So there's no tax, you know, there's, there's, no, uh, there's no tax provisions, <laughs> you know, the, 
None of the tax provisions exist. Now, um, what Senator Sanders, to his credit, did is try to outline what he thought uh, could be done uh, to finance uh, his version of Medicare for All, which is the Senate Bill S-1804. And the senator initially projected, this was back in 2016, that the 10-year cost uh, for his bill would be about $13.8 trillion over a period of 10 years. Now, that's a very substantial amount of money. The problem that he's had is thus far not one independent analyst has confirmed that level of funding. Uh, almost everybody who's looked at this is projecting a much higher level of federal spending. And uh, the, the best, uh, the most recent... Uh, analyses come from two, uh, two very prominent public policy institutions that are on the opposite ends of the political spectrum. The Urban Institute, which has an outstanding reputation, it's a liberal think tank in Washington. They have an outstanding reputation for empirical research. They're very good at what they do. They estimated that the Sanders bill would cost $32 trillion over 10 years. Now, the Urban Institute published that in 2016. Um, their Mercatus Center at George Mason University, uh, they brought on the former Medicare trustee, a man by the name of Professor Charles Blayhouse. And Blayhouse is a mathematician, an econometrician. He did a, uh, an analysis of the Sanders bill, and he came up with $32.6 trillion. So they're Pretty close. basically in the same neighborhood. Um, so you have basically two from very, very different uh, think tanks, you know, from a philosophical standpoint. You have basically a confirmation that this is what we're talking about, roughly $32 trillion. That's a lot of money. Um, what it really means is that the solvency of every hospital in the country is going to be a political issue for every congressman in every congressional district in the country, um, is it going to stay at $32.6 trillion? Um, Congress has a great record in addition and multiplication of benefits, services, and taxes, <laughs> a very bad record of subtraction of federal spending. So it's unlikely, even with the cuts in drug, promise, uh, drug prices that Sanders is promising and his reductions in administrative costs, that healthcare spending is going to be less. How much was Medicare um, when it was uh, launched supposed to be? Oh, gee whiz. I think it was, I think it was um, somewhere between 3 and $5 billion. And Well, it, I think originally it was actually very small. I mean, they made the, that's a great story, though, because the actuaries made projections uh, going out to um, 1990, back in 19... In the, in, the, in the late 60s, yes. 67, 68, and they were off wildly. I mean, it was mm -hmm. just an incredible number. Yes. Uh, they did not anticipate um, the uh, utilization of medical services. Right. Uh, but, I mean, I mean, on one level, I mean, it's not, there's nothing surprising about that on one level. I mean, the difficulty is, is that with the Sanders bill and the House bill, I mean, you're, you can expect utilization one minute uh, to explode. 
because they have first dollar coverage. There's no cost sharing. There's no cost sharing in the program. There's no coinsurance, no copayments uh, for re- regular medical services. Um, and there's very limited cost sharing for prescription drugs. So basically what you have is free goods at the point of service. Well, a free good will induce, you know, every economist will tell you, unlimited demand. Unlimited demand. It's, and so the health care yeah. costs are going to soar beyond current levels unless Congress has got the guts to squeeze savings out of the cost of care by cutting hospital and physician reimbursements, which Blayhouse says they must do in order to maintain the program. And, and we'll, we're going to break right here. I want to pick this up from exactly this point when we get back in the next segment, so stay with us. Sure. Yep. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. We're back in Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Howe with my guest, uh, Dr. Bob Moffitt from the Heritage Foundation, and we're going to pick this conversation right back up. We were talking about the, um, the unanticipated high costs associated with this plan based on the track record of the federal government and health care programs. So, Bob, pick it up. Well, yeah, I, don't, I think as a general rule, uh, well, in fact, it's not a question of what I think. What I think is not important here. The fact is, the fact is that government actuaries have almost always underestimated uh, the true cost of government health care programs, beginning with Medicare and Medicaid as well. Uh, so these things are usually a lot more expensive as I said, the reason is Congress does not like to say no. They're very, very good at saying yes when it comes to benefits or services or more spending. They're fabulous at that. <laughs> they know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to saying no, as I say, they're good at addition. They're really bad at subtraction. Uh, and uh, we expect the same dynamic uh, to play out. The problem, though, is that in order to meet the target of $32 trillion in 10 years, which is what both the Urban Institute, once again, a liberal think tank, and uh, the Mercatus Center have identified as the target spending, okay, for Medicare for All. Um, They would have to cut uh, the reimbursement of all medical providers across the board on average about 40%. Blayhouse came up with a 40% figure. 
in order to do that. So what that means is, you know, every doctor is going to be paid Medicare rates, every home health agency, every hospital, every nursing home, every medical professional who are who is uh, practicing under Medicare or not is going to basically get Medicare rates. And that would result in across the board in about a 40% reduction in uh, medical reimbursement uh, across the board in the country. So we will have medical reimbursements that will be much lower than they are today. Revenues for doctors are going to be smaller. The question is, um, can they do it? Uh, And what would it actually mean? What happens if you cut doctors' reimbursement by 40%? I mean, will you have the same access uh, to health care? Will you have the same access to quality care? Or will you have waiting lines like you have in Great Britain, uh, where basically American medical clinics are going to start looking like Soviet grocery stores? I mean, that's the real concern, I think, that a lot of us have, that this is just insane. I think it's a legitimate concern because um, right now, for example, over 50% of physicians are over age 55. Oh, that's a problem. Yes. And, and I have personal experience with this, trying to um, weigh the benefits of continuing to practice medicine or not. When you and I were youngsters, Bob, back right. in the you know dark ages, absolutely, the doctors would very often practice well into their 70s, sometimes beyond yes. that. And they had institutional knowledge attached to that, and they were the best doctors. Yes, they were. Well, we are losing those doctors at a rate that is just astounding. There is a tremendous doctor shortage, as it is right now in this country. And that is going to accelerate when it becomes um, just just, um, financially... um, Onerous when it's not worth um, getting up every day and going into practice. And and yeah. I in my practice have, as it is right now in in the current system, we've got three doctors who are under age sixty five who are um, on on the runway to retiring, and. Um, and this is this is something that is happening all over the country. There is physician burnout, which is a very um, a, a it's a very, public health crisis. It is a public yep. health crisis, and yes. and this will this will accelerate that too. And we can spend you know an hour just talking about this, but but yeah. you're you're a hundred percent right that um, that the reduction in reimbursement is going to accelerate the the. Um, the public health crisis that we now face, and it will be like the Soviet Union. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, I, people talk about this sort of thing in the abstract, but the truth of the matter is you're quite right. Uh, all of us uh, who deal with this issue, in fact, and, and more and more patients, ordinary Americans are running into this, where they thought they were going to be able to get, you know, a same-day appointment, or they thought they were going to be able to get a reasonable you know, appointment with a specialist, and it's taking much longer than it used to be uh, the case. It's starting to creep up. Uh, that undermines quality of care. Of course it does. 
Um, and all the survey research shows that doctors are becoming increasingly demoralized. And they're demoralized for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons why they're demoralized is because of the administrative costs that they've got to deal with. And true, some of these, a lot of these administrative costs come from the private sector uh, insurance companies. But you also have a lot of administrative hassle by the government. Uh, Medicare is kind of like the Godzilla of government regulation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and the time that they're spending on paperwork and checking boxes and complying and, re- and reporting uh, to government officials is getting larger. Here, you're going to have basically a total single-payer system where, in fact, you know, they promise, you know, administrative costs will go down, but there's no reason based on the Medicare experience that that is true. Medicare spends, uh, there's an enormous administrative cost in Medicare, uh, but it's shifted. It doesn't show up in the the budget. It's only 2 or 3% in the budget. But actually what happens is a lot of these administrative costs are pushed off, uh, shifted basically to doctors and hospitals and clinics and home health agencies in the private sector. And this, I don't see where... You know, Medicare for all solves this problem. I think it basically makes it worse. You know, I want to I want to just kind of shift the conversation away from the doctors and back to the other means of financing this bill because reducing reimbursement and decreasing access to care is one way that they'll be able to make this bill. Um, they won't make it work, but but they they believe It'll that fun- the, it's functional. Yes. Yeah. So there's, there's, there are even more onerous ways that this bill is going to get funded, and, and why don't you spend a few minutes on that? Well, sure. I mean, we don't have any, uh, unfortunately, neither the Congressional Budget Office nor the Office of the Actuary at the Medicare program have done a, uh, any kind of a uh, comprehensive analysis of this. The only attempt at analyzing the tax impact of uh, Senator Sanders' plan. Uh, it's about three years old now, so it's not, I mean, it's three-year-old analysis. Uh, down in Georgia, where you are, <clears throat> there's a professor, Ken Thorpe, of Emory University in Georgia. Thorpe, I know uh, Professor Thorpe. He uh, was an advisor to Cong- uh, to Senator, or pardon me, to, uh, to uh, Bill President Clinton. Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is... Uh, He's one of the top-ranked economists who deal with health care in the United States. Uh, he did an analysis of the Sanders plan back in uh, 2016, and Thorpe concluded that the tax impact, uh, in other words, the taxes that would be required to finance this uh, spending level, would amount to an additional 20% tax on income. So virtually every taxpayer group, uh, regardless of their income, would actually end up paying more in health care taxes for health care than they do today for health care under current arrangements. Now, this is a controversial study, and I'm willing to uh, concede that, and first of all, and it's three years old. But I can assure you it will be further debated, and you can also be assured that other independent analysts are going to start looking at the tax impact of uh, Medicare for all bills in the House and Senate, because this is a big question. 
uh, Ocasio-Cortez uh, and <laughs> Senator Sanders and uh, Senator Warren and Senator Booker and Senator Harris uh, keep telling us that basically the rich will take care of this. Um, we'll just simply tax the living daylights out of rich people <laughs> who already basically pay the bulk of the taxes anyway. But we're going to pay for this. The only problem with that is is that I don't know any serious person with an IQ above a dinner menu who, <laughs> who honestly thinks that you can actually uh, finance something like this without a broad-based uh, taxation. And Thorpe's analysis shows that it would be broad-based. In other words, it would be a combination of payroll and income taxes, and it would hit about virtually every every category of, of uh, uh, every category of, of income. I think it's instructive to point out that there have been attempts to do single payer at the state level. Oh, sure. And they failed. Colorado, California, Vermont. Mm -hmm. And and why did they fail? They didn't have the guts (laughs) to impose the taxes that would be required to actually finance what they promised. And this was I use the term guts because if they really believed in it, they would have said to their people. We're going to do it. You know. Well, they gave. We're the, going to do it. They gave and the people pay those taxes in Colorado. They actually gave them a a uh, an opportunity to vote on it themselves, and it was. Turned, oh yes, they did. It was turned down four to one when it was That's uh, correct. When when it was uh, um, yeah. explained how much more the taxes would be if they if they passed this. Yeah, and the tax the tax bill that they were talking about in Colorado was not crazy. Although, you know, you add it to the 15% you pay now on federal payroll taxes. Uh, but they were talking about a 10% uh, payroll tax to That's finance right. the Colorado health plan. Right. Uh, the Colorado single-payer uh, proposal would have been about 10%. Um, in California, uh, the Senate uh, legislative um, research uh, group, which does research, obviously, for the California State Senate, they came up with a 15% payroll tax for Californians. And, and Needless they, to say, uh, the politicians in California even, and believe me, politicians in California are very liberal, uh, they got cold feet. Yes, absolutely. And they wouldn't even they let got, it out of, out of committee. They wouldn't even let it out. That's right. Never came to the floor for a vote. They got frightened when they saw this. And, you know, in other words, you know, there were some sane liberals who were saying, hey, wait a minute, look, you know, we like our jobs. <laughs> we're we, not going to turn California into a, uh, a basket case. We like our uh, businesses being in California. We don't yeah. want them to leave. Well, they're already leaving. <clears throat> California's got an enormous problem, as you know. The out-migration from California is very significant. Uh, people are leaving California for Arizona and Nevada and Texas, and one of the reasons is that if you're a middle-class person, especially between the ages of 25 and 45, uh, the economic opportunities are drying up for you. Exactly. You know, Unless you're in high-tech or the Hollywood business or <laughs> uh, in bio, biomedical research. Or, or a politician. <laughs> or a politician. So we'll yeah, get... I mean, their problems are really severe. I mean, if you want to look at what liberalism looks like on a financial from a financial standpoint, California is the future. Exactly. Well, we're going to stop. Right, we're going to we're going to get to the last segment because I have a couple of things more we need to cover before the end. So stay with us. Sure.
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we've had a very uh, informative conversation about what the um, liberal left wants for our health care system. So before we talk about some maybe hopefully brighter uh, more hopeful subjects. Let's just close with um, what the the House bill looks like, which is a little bit different, Bob, and and has some other features in it which would make this even way more expensive. Yeah, uh, the House bill shares with the Senate bill uh, a lot of commonalities. Um, the, um, I mean, they're both they both aim at the same general policy. Uh, the language is a bit different. I mean, we're not talking about, um, you know, you're not talking about radical differences. But the House bill does do things that the Senate bill doesn't do. The Senate bill uh, bases uh, bases all medical reimbursement uh, in the new system on the existing Medicare rates. So it's the existing Medicare rates that... Um, uh, will determine what doctors will get paid and what hospitals and clinics and home health agencies and nurses will all be paid. In the case of um, the uh, House bill, H.R. 1384, they would establish a global budget. In other words, they would, it would be a very much of a top-down system. They will determine how much they're going to spend on health care in the United States and then what they would do is they would uh, allow uh, the directors to negotiate rates within that budget uh, for the different regions uh, of the country. So there would be a director who would appoint subordinate uh, uh, co-directors, basically. It's a very pyramidal structure. And what they would do is they would take the money that's allocated to them and, and and do it that way. So that's a little different in terms of reimbursement. It's somewhat different. There's another very big difference, however, with the House bill, uh, and that is that uh, the House bill has an even more generous category of benefits. In the Senate bill, there are about 10 you know categories of benefits. In the House, there are 14 categories of benefits. 
but the one that's significant is that they did something that the Sanders bill, uh, the Senate bill, uh, offered by offered by Senator Sanders does not do, and that is they add long-term care to the program. Oh, that'll be affordable. Yeah, well, see, I mean, you're talking about very big costs there because right now, long-term care, now it's already about 70% of long-term care is paid for by the taxpayers anyway, under primarily under Medicaid and Medicare. Uh, 70% of long-term care costs. Now it'd be 100% of long-term care costs um, paid for by uh, the new national health care program. That is going to, you're right, that is going to be a very expensive proposition. Uh, and it's going to be even more so because, of course, we've got a rapidly aging population, in which case we're going to see a lot more demand for long, a big jump in the demand for long-term care services. Uh, that's, I mean, I, that's why I'm so interested <laughs> in the Congressional Budget Office really getting their teeth into this thing. Oh my and God! Telling us what this is actually going to mean because I think we're looking at we're looking at levels of federal spending we've never seen before. Well, we're looking at levels of spending that exceed the the monetary fund of the planet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, already. I mean, you know, we're we're talking about. I mean, healthcare is almost twenty percent of our national national economy, uh, and you know. The, it will still be that way. It seems to me, I mean, the whole question is, you know, will, I mean, when it comes to how much we're actually going to spend, it all depends upon whether or not politicians have the guts to, uh, to, really, to really savage uh, the financing of hospitals and doctors and nurses and home health agencies. And that's a big question. Um, you know, the British show that you can do it, you know. <laughs> well, they I mean, but, we could. But I mean, they right have now, a safety like, valve, though. Well, they, yeah, they do have the safety valve. So for people who really do need to get out uh, of the British system, and they let them out, I mean, without penalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this system, you can get out. I mean, I, I'm going to actually publish a column on this very shortly about how what the story is with regard to private contracting between doctors and patients, how, how you would get out of the system based on the House bill. But the truth of the matter is very few people, actually a very tiny number of people, would be able to get out of the system legally. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, when, you, when, you jump, when you were talking about bootleg medicine, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're thinking about the 1920s and the Model Ts and the speakeasies. Yes. I mean, maybe that will happen. <laughs> In a dystopia USA, I think uh, that's gonna that's yeah. gonna be something that we're gonna unfortunately be facing. But in, 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 <laughs> you hear it now, you know the, the little the little hole in the wall, and the whispering, you know what's the past. Bob Bob sent me. <laughs> Bob sent me. You know, in the... or, or we could just have passwords like prostate. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the word of the day. It's Groucho Marx, the, the Groucho Marx um, word of the day. Yeah. In the few minutes that we've got left in today's show, I want to tease an upcoming show that you and I talked about, which is going to be the opposite view. We've talked about a very pessimistic, dark view of what people on the, what leftists in this country are trying to drag our healthcare system towards. But there's a there's a brighter, more optimistic way, and I think in one of the um, papers, well, I think in the debate that you had um, that that you um, 
moderated um, uh, with a couple of other health care policy people, you, you made it very clear that opposition to single payer does not mean acceptance of the status quo. Oh, absolutely not. In fact, one thing that we can say for sure is that on both sides of this national debate, there is a strong consensus that the current health care system, as we know it today, is not working as well as it should. I mean, <clears throat> you know, our position would be, obviously, there, there are different reasons why that's the case, but our position would be that the reason why the system doesn't work as well as it should is because, uh, primarily because of government policy that uh, does two things. It frustrates normal competition among health plans and providers and other medical professionals. And the second thing is, is the system is utterly, how should I say it, utterly hostile to real consumer choice, meaning that all of the key decisions in the system about what kind of plan you get, what kind of benefits you get, what kind of medical goods and services are available to you, what you will pay in premiums, deductibles, co-payments, co-insurance, whatever. None of those decisions are really in the hands of consumers at all. They're in the third-party payers, third-party administrators, uh, whether it's employers, government officials, or managed care executives, make all of those decisions. So you don't have anything in the healthcare system that looks normal compared to the rest of the economy. So the question is, do we move toward a competitive system or do we uh, basically throw it away, uh, give up on it? And, of course, the single-payer people, um, you know, Senator Sanders and Senator Warren and Senator Booker and Senator Harris, that's what they want to do. Um, our view is, is that we ought to move exactly in the opposite direction. And, you know, to start off, uh, American health care, we don't even have a system in the United States. Uh, basically, you have a very, very large set of public and private third-party payment arrangements, and there's no area of public policy uh, where the complexity and diversity of, of the condition is more apparent uh, than in American health care. And the need for state and local authorities to accommodate or to deal with these dif uh, different needs is, is, is vital. So we would radically decentralize the system. Um, and the way to do that is to turn, you know, insurance authority back over to the states. And at the same time, to make sure that any federal subsidies that go to the states in the form of block grants, that's what we would propose, that those subsidies be used to give people choice. In other words, that they can pick and choose the plans they want, uh, the providers they want, and uh, the uh, and those subsidies also would have to be used uh, for um, to take care of people with pre-existing conditions. There's no debate among serious people about the need to take care of people with pre-existing conditions, but that's just simply not a real conversation. I don't know anybody in Congress who's in favor of taking away protections of for people with pre-existing medical conditions. So, um, and the other, the other big change is to give people, the other big change that we're talking about in, in this uh, proposal we've been developing, the health care choices proposal, is that if you are on Medicaid, if you are on uh, the Children's Health Insurance Program, and you want to have another option, if you want to 
you know, take a private plan, whatever that private plan would be, or for that matter, even your employer's plan. Uh, if you want to do that, uh, you can. And you can get the value of the money we would spend uh, on Medicaid coverage for you. You can use that uh, to offset the cost of a private health plan. You know, the, that that kind of idea has succe- been successful in states already that have um, – that have uh, implemented it, like Indiana, for example, which is mm-hmm. a you know a, a great laboratory, and the states are laboratories for ideas. That's what that's what uh, our framers intended. They wanted the states right. to be laboratories for innovation, so that we could pick the best ideas and and um, then then spread them and implement them on a, on a greater scale. Um, right. Right. But, but the, uh, you know, and w- w- uh, this is a tease because I want to. S- we're going to have you back, and we're going to spend a whole a whole show talking about ideas how this can actually um, go in a positive direction. Um, but but it's going to take education, and I think that one of the things that that um, uh, in in the um, debate that you that you moderated, one of the the, it, the you had a question and answer period, and one of the questions asked about uh about the um uh the the liberty health share or the the uh christian sharing ministries or oh, yeah, the yeah. free market and i think that that's really the answer we're not going to really have time to talk about it because we're in the last minute so so i'm going to leave that on the table there and this is going to be the crux i think of what we talk about when we get you back here in about about uh, a month to to talk about sure. positive ideas so so i'd love to so bob i i just want to say that uh it's always a pleasure to have you on and to have you um really um give clarity to some of these very confusing issues and uh and uh you know i i think that uh people who who want to learn more should go to the heritage foundation website and read um the um writings of bob moffitt and the other people in the healthcare policy section of the heritage foundation last word bob Last word is this, is that the United States is, one, is the greatest uh, experiment in popular democracy in the history of the world. Uh, we have been able to do something that very few people have been able to do, and that is to maintain for over 200 years a functioning society that is based on freedom, political freedom and personal freedom. Uh, we obviously need security, but there is really no real security outside of freedom. Uh, so, you know, it seems to, to us anyway, and my colleagues at the Heritage Foundation, the most important thing for us to do as a people is to make sure at the end of the day that uh, we maintain the standards of our forefathers who brought this thing into existence, which is ultimately the government is not God. Uh, they have and they, they are and should be restrained uh, in their exercise of power. The concentration of power is a great evil. The whole point of the Constitution is to prevent the concentration of power, and health care is no exception. Okay. Bob, thank you so much for being here, and and thank you for joining us in the Doctor's Lounge. Until next time, this is Dr. Hal signing off. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.